But what I do find sometimes is missing from public and Christian dialogue is what does this mean though? And so people are left with a little bit of um, existential angst when they can't discover that meaning. And here Lewis is talking about going through that exact same process and having that same problem where he's he's saying like, uh, I get this, but I need I need something to drop the significance of the meaning into my heart. And that's what he's discussing in this letter. Welcome to Lesser Known Lewis, where two friends and C.S. Lewis fans explore his lesser known works. I'm Sean. And I'm Jordan. Join us for season three on metaphor and myth where Lewis's writings on language, imagination, and storytelling will help us come to see, know, and taste reality more deeply. We're back. We are back. Uh, Sean, I hope you had a Merry Christmas. We, uh... <laughs> uh yeah, no, so we're, uh, folks, we're recording this on the 20th of December. So Christmas has not happened yet, but the, you're, of course, listening to this sometime mid-January, I think, if all goes well. But, Sean, how do you think your Christmas went? I'm going to just go ahead and say that my Christmas, I didn't sleep enough because I was hanging out with my family, and uh, but that that's a good thing, and that I ate too much food and that I got some good presents and hopefully gave better ones to my wife. How was your not yet Christmas? Oh, it was wonderful. I got to see my family and hang out with them. And uh, I loved playing with my nephews. And, you know, it was a miracle that it snowed on Christmas Day. You know? I Yeah, it started, it started snowing for me. <laughs> Uh, right as I went to a beautiful candlelit wow. uh, midnight mass. That sounds yeah, beautiful. Couldn't be better. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say that that last part is is a far-fetched. I, I, and I know many, many listeners, this probably doesn't matter, but Jordan, I, I commented to some of my colleagues at work here the other day mm -hmm. that I actually, you know, we spent a few Christmases in Turkey. Mm -hmm. And so no snow at that time. In fact, one year we went to... Uh, it was kind of like a novelty indoor snow park just oh. to kind of experience it. Uh -huh. It was pretty funny. Uh, great little place. But I commented to some of my colleagues about how hard it is to feel like it's Christmas time when you are in Saskatchewan, Canada mm. at in December and there's no snow. There's almost none at all in the city where I'm at, which is so, so rare. Yeah, well... Yeah, maybe Al Gore was right. I guess I don't. I don't know. Uh, One voice against the masses. It could be what it is, but um, but I have a little Christmas tie-in with climate change, which is everybody's favorite two topics. I can't wait. Uh, so what we're experiencing right now is an El Nino, mm. and I didn't know you spoke Spanish. I, I am I am fluent in Spanish, <laughs> as a matter of fact. El Nino means the child. Very good. And Muy it bien. comes actually from a, a longer Spanish phrase, which I will not um, say because I don't want to embarrass any native Spanish speakers uh -huh. with how good my Spanish is. Uh -huh. But uh, in reference to the Christmas season, why? Because El Nino uh, as a weather phenomenon 
peaks around Christmas time. Hmm. So they say the reason that we don't have any snow and why it's been above freezing, which is, again, extremely rare for the part of the world that we live in, mm-hmm. is because we're in an El Nino. And the last couple of years, we had La Niñas. And those those girl children, the La Niñas, are apparently snowier and colder, wow. according to our Central American um, friends who made up those terms. Uh, speaking of making up terms, I actually can't tell right now if you've just made all of that up off the top of your head or are basing it in fact. So I, I am going to go ahead and say I did fact check this the other day Okay. because it came up. I was with my friend Josh, who is a listener of the show, Josh and Cammy. Here's your, your shout out from mm-hmm. our conversation the other day. Cammy is Colombian mm-hmm. and did not believe me. Okay. And she's like, that doesn't sound like it can be right. So I felt compelled to fact check it and because I felt like, oh, you're right. This can't be true. But mm-hmm. it turns out, turns out that is where it came from. Wow. They say 16th century uh, Latino fishermen were the first people to use the term. Wow. Well, folks, I hope that you came here for all of this weather <laughs> information. <laughs> Um, uh, before we get to the essay, we're already a little into a, a rabbit trail, a wander here, but, um, you, you just gave some shout outs. I thought maybe we could actually give a few more shout outs at the beginning of this episode, because lately we've been getting a few people writing in. I've had some people, um, messaging me, just talking about the shows, things they liked episodes they thought were interesting. Um, just wanted to say, hey, thanks for writing in. Um, heard from um, some people I'm getting to know uh, over on the Pints with Jack Slack channel, like Jake and Marina. Um, also heard, we got emails. I think you saw them, Sean, in the email box from uh, Brian and Matt and from my uh, roommate when I was in seminary, Justin. He sent me a nice Facebook message correcting something I said on a previous episode which um, <laughs> I should really remember what it was that he corrected because I should probably like publish the correction. Uh, it was, it was worth doing, but I'll, maybe I'll do that in the future here, but um, just want to say thanks for writing in. We love hearing from people who are listening, whether we know you or not. Um, it's, it's fun to know what uh, struck you as interesting or struck you as incorrect. If if we're saying things that you don't agree with or think we've misspoke, we love to hear that and um, make sure that we're we're correcting ourselves and being as truthful and factual as possible. That's a little uh, foreshadow. I see what you did there. That's yeah. a little foreshadow. Um, also wanted to say thank you to um, a couple of families that I know here who uh, contributed to our show. Not not just through the Patreon, but they just said, we believe in what you're doing and, and wanted to help you guys out in paying for uh, covering some costs for the show. So, um, you, you know, every episode, I think our Patreon subscribers, but I wanted to thank uh, my friends, the Amantes, the Collins and the Steels for uh, contributing and helping us continue this show. And yeah, if you're listening to this and want to join in the contributions there there is a bit of financial cost that uh, this show takes uh, just to do software and hardware and upkeep and um, having guests on and that kind of thing 
Um, if you want to help us keep it going and keep up our uh, regular episode production, we'd appreciate it. And so just head over to patreon.com slash lesser known Lewis. You could do that there. Um, Sean, do you want to say some other things that would help us get the show out there that don't involve money? Most certainly. Uh, of course, like Jordan said, if you want, you can support through Patreon, but there are other ways. The three R's, not reduce, reuse, recycle. In this case, you can rate our show, you can review our show, and you can recommend our show. So uh, listener base uh, really does help with that. Um, Jordan, why don't we read a couple of reviews? Yeah. Uh, I think we have enough built up that we could make this a regular feature of the show for the next little while. And, mm -hmm. and again, listener, if you haven't written a review, we would, we would love if you would do that. It, it actually significantly increases the likelihood that our podcast will be found by, uh, by more people. So I'm going to just take the first one, if that's okay, Jordan. Yes, go for it. And give a shout out and read the review by someone named Josh Chalmers, hmm. who said, if you feel like you already know everything there is to know about Lewis, then this podcast will blow your mind. Wow. That, that's a really kind review from Josh Chalmers. Thank, thanks for that's that, right. Josh. That's right. Yeah. Josh Chalmers is a good friend of mine, uh, somebody who <laughs> we've worked together. And as a matter of fact... I was a co-host on a podcast with Josh for uh, a little while. So in a lesson to you from Josh, I don't know if he would say this, but I certainly will, that Jordan, you should probably find yourself a new co-host because when he got a different co-host than me, his show got significantly better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh. But uh, yeah, thanks for that, Josh. And and I'll, I'll read one more. Um, we got one from M. Prawl. M. Prawl says, this was so good for my heart to hear as I listened this afternoon. I really appreciated the host sharing those bits about the alb and the chossable vestments. Also, I love having a podcast about lesser read Lewis writings, so many essays to dig into and truths to nurse the mind and heart. Well, thank you very much, M. Prawl. I remember that episode. Uh, I actually don't remember which one it was, but it was in our second season. And I remember your comments about the alb and chossable uh, vestments were also were very good for my heart to hear. I remember that. So, oh, cool. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of nourishing the mind and heart, we are going to uh, today cover this um, second letter. Uh, we promised a couple episodes ago that we, we started a two-part series on two letters that Lewis wrote to his friend Arthur Greaves. And the first one was written on September 22nd, 1931. And this letter, today's letter, is from October 1st, 1931, so just a couple days later. And uh, you should probably go back and listen to that episode first because this is kind of a two-parter. But just to catch you up, you know, it's been Christmas. You've done all this family stuff. I'm sure you've forgotten our episode on it by then. The background to this letter and why we're covering it gets really hashed out there in, I think, a 27-minute intro, if I remember correctly. Uh, but... Sean, you'll remember that Lewis had had an important conversation with his friends J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson on this uh, place called Addison's Walk in Oxford, and that happened on September 19th. He then wrote a letter to Arthur, his childhood friend, on September 22nd, saying that the conversation was really impactful and was on metaphor and myth, among other things, and so that's why this whole season is called that. Then... On September 28th was when Lewis took a ride in his brother Warney's sidecar to the zoo. And in his autobiography, he says that 
when he got in the sidecar, um, he was he really wasn't believing in Christ, but when he got out at the zoo, he was believing in Christ. And so today's letter is four days after that. I can't remember how many days September has, but <laughs> anyways, that was September 28th. This letter's on October 1st. And so it's the first uh, letter that Lewis writes after his full conversion to Christ. And it includes more of the information on that conversation that he had with Tolkien and Dyson on Addison's Walk. And so we get a better um, insight into the idea that Tolkien really drilled home for him, which was myth became fact. And he talks about that in this letter, like four days later. And of course, he let he later wrote an essay on the idea of myth became fact. And if you are, you know, caught up to date and you're lesser known Lewis listening, you've just heard our episodes on that essay with Andrew Lazo. But, um, Sean, do you have any introductory thoughts on the essay before we kind of get into some quotes and thoughts and all that? Only that I, I would like to marvel one more time that we have these letters and that so much of his thought process in the last weeks before he gives, uh, before he puts his faith in Christ and the first days after, and that we have such intimate thoughts, like this isn't him writing to be published. He is talking to arguably his best and oldest friend at this point. Um, and in the last letter, we covered this, like he, and he has actually ranked and made <laughs> tears of his friendships. And he says like, like he, he's bearing his heart. And I think that's a valuable and interesting thing if anybody is converting or going through a major worldview change, but even more so because Lewis, as we all know, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure, you know, he is, he is one of the premier thinkers of the 20th century. He is in the top tier of of minds in the world. And I just think of, um, this is maybe a, a silly analogy, but this is what comes to mind when, when I think about Lewis's conversion is uh, I do like, I like to garden. And back in the small town where I was living before Eston, there was an empty dormitory one spring and I decided to start some tomato seeds in there early. So while the seeds are sprouting and they come up out of the soil they start to grow, they get some leaves on them and whatnot. And then you go, okay, weather's warm enough outside. It's time to transfer them to the garden. If you just take them and plant them in the ground, they will die right away because the plants are weak from living in a climate controlled environment. So what you have to do is you actually have to harden them off. You, you take them outside, you expose them to the wind, to some cooler temperatures. And some people actually just rough up the, the sprouts so that they get a little bit harder. And, it, you know, I just get that picture of, of you know the coach or the dad or the friend saying no easy baskets and just playing hard defense for a kid that's learning basketball same kind of idea as these plants that are growing up and so with lewis we have somebody who thinks so deeply and was i think rightly critical and wrongly critical in different seasons about christian doctrine which we're going to cover a little bit in this conversation and about the 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 grand meta narrative of christianity and the idea of Christ being both historical and, and in his words, mythological at the same time. And, and because his mind was never really coddled, or at least his faith was not coddled, it went through um, severe trials emotionally with loss and grieving and disappointment. And he put his, his fledgling faith, so to speak, through all the winds of 
the deep rational thinking that Lewis is famous for, that by the time that it starts to bloom into fruit, you have a really hardy plant. And so that's why I think so many people would say that Lewis is, is an apologist because his faith was put through this season of difficulty. And so now we have this amazing letter that's really at the beginning of what he's famous for in the Christian world, which is his, his deep insight, his defense, and his imaginative approach to the Christian faith. So, so I just, I, I marvel. I, I, I'm honestly filled with a sense of wonder that we get to read this brief letter and, and see a glimpse inside that mind that didn't make it easy um, for itself to come to faith in Christ. And then when it did, when he did embrace it, um, it was just so robust. That is beautiful. I, well done on using uh, metaphor to, <laughs> to communicate your thoughts on this. That's great. Um, yeah, and so his, his faith in Christ, which um, it's so interesting because in his autobiography, he kind of just says that it, you know he got in the sidecar not believing in Christ and he got out believing in Christ. But then here in the letter that he wrote four days later, he he writes about it a little bit um, differently. And he just says that I have certainly moved a bit. And this is like in reference to his belief in Christ, even if it turns out to be a less bit than I thought. What has been holding me back at any rate for the last year or so has not been so much a difficulty in believing as a difficulty in knowing what the doctrine meant. You can't believe a thing while you are ignorant what the thing is. And that just stood out to me because we, we, we've done a couple essays in this season about epistemology, about how we know things and come to know things and come to understand things. And here epistemology is at play because for Lewis, his, at this point in his intellectual journey, which you just kind of outlined, um, it wasn't a problem of faith, of believing that was keeping him from Christ, it was a problem of actually knowing and understanding what it is Christians believe and understanding the doctrine. Right. And notice he says that he didn't understand the meaning, which just made me think of that line from mm, Blespels and Flalansferies, <laughs> I think. Oh, man. The line about uh, reason is the organ of truth and the imagination is the organ of meaning. And so what's keeping Lewis from understanding the doctrine of Christ is understanding its meaning. Yes. And so in order to understand that, in order for him to come closer to Christ, what he's lacking is his imaginative capability, not his, his rationale, his, his reason. And so I just kind of wonder, for myself to reflect, I go, I wonder if some of my, some of the things that are holding me back from knowing Jesus more is not my lack of reason, but my lack of imagination, because I don't know what things mean. So insightful, so insightful, because meaning, I would say, is different than being able to explain even too. Um, yeah. I, I would say that I had a number, I, I've actually referenced this season in my life, this phase in my life, which was just a couple of years ago, a few times on the podcast so far. And as a matter of fact, one of the reasons why this podcast exists is because of this time. But um, Jordan, I think when you called me and first pitched the idea of us having these conversations together, that I was listening to an audiobook called Maps of Meaning 
by Jordan Peterson. And uh, some people have compared Jordan Peterson to C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. uh, although I, although I can see why. I don't think that that's uh, quite valid necessarily in all ways. But that I'll tell you what I was I was on a C.S. Lewis forum on Facebook with a hundred thousand people in this Facebook group. Um, many of our listeners are probably in it. I made that comparison. And was very busy the next week defending myself from people who did not did like that Did you just unleash the, you unleashed the storm? Well, good thing there's two lesser known Lewis hosts because you, you can be the four and I'll be the not quite four. Yeah, that's um, great. Guy. I, and cause I'm also not really against it, but and because actually I'm about to say, I think that they agreed on this point about meaning. Um, a lot of like that book is, is, um, Peterson's interpretation through a Jungian psychological lens of the idea of archetypes and what gives people psychological, how people really interpret psychological meaning of different things. I don't Mm -hmm. want to get too far down that track, but that would be a point of convergence between how I understand Lewis's approach to meaning and to imagination and Mm. Peterson's Mm. Um, certainly there that they would both love myth for that same reason. And, and that maps of meaning it got me thinking, you know, there, there is um, maybe an evangelical Protestant approach that would be summed up in, in the book. It was popular probably about 20 years ago now, 15, 20 years ago, but you had the Purpose Driven series mm-hmm. by, by Rick Warren. So you'd have the Purpose Driven Life. And, and you know what? I think a lot of people can find purpose in their faith and in their projects, in their activism, in their families and whatever else. But what I do find sometimes is missing from public and Christian dialogue is what does this mean though? And so people are left with a little bit of mm-hmm. um, existential angst when they can't discover that meaning. And here Lewis is talking about going through that exact same process and having that same problem where he's, he's saying like, uh, I get this, but I need, I need something to drop the significance of the meaning into my heart. And that's what he's discussing in this letter. That is one of the main things that this whole season has been helping me with, actually, because I keep having, I feel that way, where I've been to, I've done my undergrad, I've got a Bible, a biblical studies degree, I have a master's of divinity, I know a lot of truths, I know a lot of the doctrines, uh, or I know the doctrines well, but Sometimes I have a hard time being able to explain what they mean and, and right. why they're important and why they, how it is that they, you know, trans, uh, transcend, no, descend from my head to my heart. That journey um, is, is partly because of the way I'm built. I'm more analytical. But it's also something that I think we just haven't done a good job of in the last couple decades uh, as Christians in communicating the gospel, we focus too much on proving that the things in the Bible actually happened, that the facts. The fact side. Yeah. So you think of like something like Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Um, great book. But it leaves you wondering, what, what, is, what do these facts mean? What do they amount to? And it doesn't, and you could like do the math and go, well, we could prove that Jesus rose from the dead and he was a real person and therefore he is the son of God. Still, what does that mean? Like, what's the depth of meaning there? Because 
you know, and I think about it in terms of the word gospel itself, the term good news. You just say Jesus is the son of God to anyone in our, in our world today. That's only news. That's a fact mm-hmm. that you're claiming. Mm-hmm. Right. The next question is, why is it good news? Right. And I think maybe part of the beauty of what Lewis does in, in defending and reclaiming myth is and bringing it back into the Christian picture, uh, bringing myth into the way we communicate the gospel is that it, he helps again, marry our imagination and meaning with reason and fact, because that's what, that's what needed to click for him in his conversion in in that conversation with Tolkien was this marriage of, of reason and imagination of myth with fact and realizing that in Christ myth and fact are, are wedded together. Myth becomes incarnate in that sense. But, um, so again, I, I have Philippians on my mind this whole time, but uh, for example, Paul, Paul says in Philippians that we should rejoice, you know, and so we get this reading scripture. It's like, well, great fact, we should rejoice as Christians, Sure, but why, you know, why does he say that? It's because he is actually caught up in this whole mythic story that sees Jesus, the Lord of all creation has come and is incarnate and is still present through the Holy Spirit. And so despite the alternative myth that the Roman Empire is telling Paul that Caesar is Lord, Paul has a different belief, a different way of seeing the world, a different myth that he believes in. And that's why he says rejoice. But it's just, yeah, I don't know. I think in all our communicating of the gospel, we we focus too much on the facts without the myth, divorced from the myth. And then we end up just communicating news to people and no, and we miss why it's good news. Yes. Yes. And so to use the the language that we started off part of this conversation with, we divorce the news from its significance or its meaning. Yeah. Yeah. We divorce it from its meaning. And and so the interesting thing is, you know, you, you brought up that the empire myth, the Roman myth that that Paul was kind of writing against, so to speak. Um, even though that might not have been his his primary motivation, he had we would use the language today of of like a, a different narrative, you know, like, so we have these two narratives that are competing and, and Paul's is certainly in competition with the empire myth. And, and I would say then we could, we could maybe make the argument. This isn't the most postmodern thing that I'll say <laughs> is that there then can be true myths, which is Lewis's um, Lewis's vernacular here and false myths. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is that as Lewis who is, remember, a, a, a literature expert and who has soaked himself in the Roman and Greek and Norse myths, not to mention centuries of English literature. He doesn't say, you know, when I came to these pagan stories, which we're, we'll maybe unpack a little bit more in a moment, um, exactly what pagan stories he's referring to, that those are necessarily the false myths. Hmm. So he doesn't believe they're factual. He doesn't believe they're true myths per se, but all of those myths for Lewis were point, they were doing something in his heart that stirred up the same meaning that the good news, that the gospel that he would come to believe were stirring up. So he would see these stories of death and resurrection, self-sacrifice, et cetera, that are, we would, we would say, these are biblical themes. These are themes that relate to Jesus. And instead of hardening him or providing him again with a counter narrative to the gospel, he never 
start he was i don't think ever tempted i mean you can correct me i've never read anything that would suggest that he was tempted to become a neo-pagan you know he wasn't he wasn't wasn't suggesting um you know i really need to to i'm going away to war so i'm going to carry this idol of the god mars in my pocket like he wasn't taking it seriously in that sense but the story before he he had segmented or compartmentalized the organ of reason, his thought life, his rationality away from that myth. Like he, he, he said, you know, this isn't true in that sense. This isn't historical, but his imagination was alive. And so because his imagination was alive, as he read these stories, he could receive the true parts of them and was actually trained then so that as soon as somebody unlocked his ability to see that the true things that he was encountering in these not quite true myths about death, resurrection, sacrifice, love, joy, beauty, um, longing beyond this world, all these themes that we've covered in this, this season. He just needed a couple of friends to come alongside him and say, hey, you realize all these things are, are present in the story of Jesus. Why can't you accept? Why can't you open up your imagination to the story as well as your mind to the story? And when he was able to do both at the same time, was when he was drawn into belief in Christ. Yeah, he says in this letter that he was um, he he could see how miraculous salvation might be necessary, and he gives an example that you know a sinner might get to the point where they needed something um, that came from beyond nature to help them help save them from their state of like whatever degradation degradation and misery and sin and whatever and he uses the example i think of an alcoholic but he says this what i couldn't see was how the life and death of someone else whoever he was 2000 years ago could help us here and now but then he writes this this is how he how he puts it in this letter what you were just saying yes what dyson and tolkien showed me was this that if i met the idea of sacrifice in a pagan story i didn't mind it at all Again, that if I met the idea of a God sacrificing himself to himself, I liked it very much and was mysteriously moved by it. Again, that the idea of the dying and reviving God, and he has in brackets, Balder, Adonis, Bacchus, similarly moved me, provided I met it anywhere except the Gospels. The reason was that in pagan stories, I was prepared to feel the myth as profound and suggestive of meanings beyond my grasp even though I could not say in cold prose, quote, what it meant. Yeah, so good. How many times, Jordan, in this podcast and all of our discussions, have we commented on how being able to say in, quote, cold prose, to use his language here, and also being able to say in suggestive meanings beyond his grasp through myth, is is C.S. Lewis able to communicate truth? Like, not just big truths, but like little observations that are profound in their meaning. I would say it's it's the genius of his writing is that ability to do both of those two things. And here, right at the beginning of his, uh, not the beginning of his faith journey, actually, I almost said that, but it's not true. He's well on his way on his faith journey, but where he crosses a border mm-hmm. into explicitly saying, oh yeah, I'm I'm actually a Christian now and I've I've come somewhere because those things are finally married. Hmm. The suggested meanings beyond his grasp and the cold prose of, quote, what it meant. So, but that does leave me with a bit of a question, Jordan. Hmm. Um, Is that like, as I read this, 
how do you think that Lewis would say that myth affected him? Like he he uses the term in this letter how myth works on a person. Um, how does it work on a person? How does and and let's use just a different word there. How does story and good story, good narrative, work on a person? I think if I'm learning anything from this season and from the guests we've had on and from Lewis, I think myth affects you in that it it's a way that you can experience reality that you couldn't otherwise experience. And so it communicates. And what it does is the way it communicates is um, even almost, I don't want to say bypassing your head and your reason. Um, although Lewis talks about sneaking past watchful dragons and that's part of what he means but myth is able to um, communicate reality to you in a way that you experience it you look along the beam and in that way it it produces an effect maybe that pure reason and rational argument might not be able to do i think but Lewis kind of talks about that kind of towards the end of this letter. So let me read that long section. And then I would love you to just uh, take us home into the sunset. He says, (laughs) he says this. Now the story of Christ is simply a true myth, which I love that phrase, true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. So again, that's the idea of myth became fact. He goes on, and one must be content to accept it in the same way, remembering that it is God's myth, where the others are men's myth. That is, the pagan stories are God expressing himself through the minds of poets, using such images as he found there, while Christianity is God expressing himself through what we call and he emphasizes real things. Therefore, it is true, not in the sense of being a description of God that no finite mind could take in, but in the sense of being the way in which God chooses to or can appear to our faculties. The doctrines we get out of the true myth are, of course, less true. They are translations into our concepts and ideas of that which God has already expressed in a language more adequate namely the actual incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. And then he asks, does this amount to a belief in Christianity? And I think he's saying, (laughs) if it does, then I guess I believe it. And he finishes, at any rate, I am now certain, A, that this Christian story is to be approached in a sense as I approach the other myths, and B, that it is the most important and full of meaning. I am also nearly certain that it really happened. It's incredible to me that, well, I'm just stealing something you said earlier, actually, (laughs) that this is Lewis four days after this conversion and um, experience in the sidecar. And he's already so articulate about these concepts. And this isn't, you know, Lewis 15 years later when he writes Myth Became Fact or whatever. This is like four days later. And he's so articulate. He knows his, he knows what he's talking about, the thought process he's gone through. And he's telling it to Arthur. Um, it's impressive. But what do you think about all this, Sean? No, I, I totally, obviously I agree. I, I couldn't, couldn't uh, feel that more. 
I think to answer the question that I gave to you in the mm-hmm. context of what I just heard and, and to use Lewis's analogy again of like the imagination and the mind being like two different organs, I think of eyes and ears. And it's fascinating to me that somebody who's so well known for his rational thought, he says it explicitly in this letter right here, that it was really through the organ of his imagination, so to speak, that he first believed and that his faculty of reason was right behind it. And he says, I quote, I am also nearly certain that it really happened. Whereas I think for many of many of us, if if I ask somebody, do you think that Christ was really crucified, died, and resurrected, and you know, he's the Lord of the universe, etc.? If somebody says, Well, I I believe that story, but I don't think it really happened, we would immediately quote Paul and say, like, oh, you know, like we are to be pitied most among all people if Christ was not really mm-hmm. resurrected. And 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 that's true. Like, I agree mm-hmm. with that. But maybe we shouldn't be so impatient or even dismissive of the imaginative because it dragged his reason into faith. Yeah. I, I think you you live in a major cognitive, you, your soul is in dissonance. It's It's in discomfort. It's unsettled if your imagination and your reason are not in two different places. And I think that some people who's the organ of their reason, their brain, their big brains believe all the stuff, but they struggle with maybe a negativity, a pessimism, um, an emptiness because that, that imaginative faculty lags behind. Mm -hmm. And if I can say one, I just finished a course on early church history, teaching about the ancient church. And I had a question that came up. One of my students were teaching through the first few centuries and, and eventually we're talking about hagiography, you know, the lives of the saints. And, and I'm talking about how, like, I think everybody should be reading these, et cetera. And, and the student, she said, yeah, I remember she had been at my house and, and I had this book of, um, it's like a kind of like a graphic novel for children on the lives of these different saints. And, and it included some of the, the, mythical, like non-historical aspects of different saints' lives. Like that is present in the testimonies that we tell in the church, most certainly. Just as an example, you know, you have somebody like um, St. Bridget in Ireland who is hanging her clothes out to dry on a on a sunbeam. You know, like that, I'm, I'm willing to say that probably didn't happen. Even with my crazy Pentecostal charismatic worldview that says anything can happen, I'm like, mm-hmm. ah, it probably didn't happen. <laughs> so, but... but but what's the point of having those in the story is that I think there is uh, an openness to communicate truth through myth. We should expose ourselves to the true testimonies that have these fantastical mythical elements. And I think of even controversial works like The Heavenly Man by Brother Yun and these different stories from maybe the persecuted church or, or whatever, where there's big, loud miracles in them. Some people I know, like many of our listeners would just like even even the Christian ones would just say, oh, I can't accept any of that. But what it's done for me is that it has filled my faith with meaning to be exposed to those stories. And then as and and I don't I don't check my brain at the door either. Like critical thinking can go hand in hand with this. And there is a process of, you know, in the example that I use, just historical discernment of saying, oh, yeah, this, this is probably true. This is mythical. And we can pick some of that apart, even though there's mystery left at the end of the day. 
But the I, even picking it apart, that's not the point of what Lewis is talking here. There are true myths, and Christ is the true myth, saying that this happened in in history and and it worked on on our hearts as well. So one other thing that I would say, Jordan, and maybe you you want to comment on this just um, as we come to a close, is that you and I uh, grew up in environments that would be a little bit more conservative and and fundamental leaning, where there would be probably it would be viewed with suspicion to do the thing that ultimately led Lewis to Christ, which is read mythology, non-Christian yeah. mythology. I would say that one of the ways that that I have been influenced by examining Lewis's writing on mythology in this season, and like you said, all the contribution of our guests and, and wiser men than us, is to actually change the way that I read and change the way that I watch. You know, how do I consume stories? And not necessarily just have a growing list of do not read, do not listen, do not watch, but to say, here is how reading, watching, and listening to this particular story or myth is influencing my imagination. Is the organ of my mind being more tuned to meaning-filled truth by this entertainment or art? Or is it being dulled and deformed by this art that I'm taking in? Mm -hmm. Well, as Lewis says at the end of the essay, myth became fact. If God chooses to be mythopoeic, meaning a myth creator, um, shall we refuse to be mythopathic? For this is the marriage of heaven and earth, perfect myth and perfect fact, claiming not only our love and obedience, but also our wonder and delight. So I think definitely to read and watch things differently. I, I am doing that also, I'm noticing. Looking for, not pausing to try and uh, analyze the meaning behind it. Yeah, because that's your mind. Because that's that, already yeah, your mind. That's stopping from looking along the beam to look at the beam. And which is good. There's place for that. That's what we do with his essays is we look at them, but we look at them to then also look along them. Um, we're trying to, yep. we're trying to do both. But I wondered about that. Not, not only with the stories we read and the, the stories we watch in movies, but also in scripture. I, I noticed that when I read scripture, I'm trained with this exegetical method and which I am trained to think I've got to get to how this applies to my life and how, right. how God requires my love and obedience, essentially. Like he says at the end of th that quote I just read, um, that in, in God's myth, mythopoeia, in his myth creating, in this marriage of myth of heaven and earth, of perfect myth and perfect fact, it claims not only our love and obedience. So if we apply this to scripture, yes, we read it. And it, God is claiming our love and obedience, and we should think about how it applies to our lives. But also, it's claiming our wonder and our delight. Yes, yes. And I wonder, or, you know, I think, what if I just read scripture and my only response to it was wonder and delight sometimes? Yeah. Would that be okay? That I don't walk away with an, an application or a takeaway? that I just read it and I wonder and I delight. Um, is there value reading scripture, as Lewis says, not to know, but to taste yes. reality? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think yes, because it trains the same way that deep, critical, reasoned, disciplined thought makes us better at reading scripture. So too does deep, engrossing feeling Hmm. teach us to read scripture better. And I think that's really, that's hard for most Westerners. It's easy to dismiss how that works on us. Because I would say not only is it wonder and delight, but when I think about like just different lowbrow myths, I was reading, I was reading the wheel of time uh, last year. But I got to this one part, I was, I was in a, I think I actually talked about this on the podcast, but it was a really profound moment where I was, I'm like in a, I'm in a airport and I'm reading this account of a, of a last stand battle in a village mm-hmm. and what the characters are going through. And I'm just like, I'm not a crier. I am a mess mm-hmm. because I was feeling the story and it was actually just connecting with something that I, I, I didn't realize that I was going through on an emotional level. None of this is mm. happening on a cognitive level. I'm like, why yeah, is this ruining me? Cause it was like, okay. You know, it's not even, it's not even high literature and in, in, by any sense, Lewis would probably laugh at me for loving the book as much as I did. And so I think that anything, not just that anything that makes us emotive, but in anything that makes us emote and ascertain meaning and stimulate our imagination alongside our, our reason that is in line with the true myth is worth just doing and, and worth embracing as, uh, uh, as equally valid as that cognitive exercise that you described. So read good stories and read good poetry and listen to good music and, 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 and uh, look at good art and let that feed your faith. Thanks for coming along on this little uh, wander through the letters, a little detour from the essays. Next week, we will be back to discuss an essay called Psychoanalysis and Literary Criticism with Chris Pipkin from the Inklings Variety Hour podcast. If you're thinking psychoanalysis and literary criticism sounds extremely boring, um, that's what I thought as well. But as usual, uh, Lewis finds a way to make everything interesting and help tie these things into what's important for our Christian faith and coming to know the true myth who became fact. So that's coming up next week. Thanks as always to our patrons, especially our top tier patron, David. Friends, we mentioned that you could join as a patron at patreon.com slash lesser known Lewis. It's $2, $5 or $10 a month. Right now we're trying to do a little push to see if we can get five more patrons That would really help us stay afloat this coming year. So if that's something you would be able to do, please head over to patreon.com slash lesserknownlewis. We would so appreciate it. Anyway, we are thankful for all of you. And until next week, we're praying that the Lord would take you deeper into the meaning of the gospel, the meaning of Jesus, and that these truths would, as Sean said, drop from your head to your heart. See you then.